This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Before Kelly Wilson vanished in 1992, she had become really good friends with this local girl named Jennifer. Jennifer lived in Gilmer, Texas, just a few houses down from Kelly's family. Like Kelly, Jennifer was a senior in high school that year, but she went to a smaller school outside of town. When Kelly never came home from work on the night of January 5th, 1992, Jennifer didn't even find out for a couple of days. When she heard the news, she hurried over to Kelly's house. One thing I do remember is that when I went to see her mom, Kathy, when I found out that she was missing, and I think I found out Tuesday, but as I'm standing there talking to her mom, she's just saying, you know, Jennifer, they're saying that she's, you know, they think she's just run away. She's like, there's no way she's run away. I mean, she left her purse. She left her contact solution. She left, I mean, she left everything. And she's like, and she left all this money she has. So she takes me in a room and she opens a drawer and she shows me just a lot of cash, a lot of cash. I'm just like, hmm, yeah, that's definitely weird. Jennifer had no idea. What was Kelly doing with all that money? I think it's unusual that any of us would have a lot of cash. She worked at NTV. She would have gotten paid with a check. Are we talking like hundreds of dollars or more? I don't remember for sure, but um, it was significant. Joe Henry, the former video store manager, also said that Kelly was paid by check, never cash. Jennifer remembers another strange detail from the weekend in 1992 when Kelly vanished. The girls had gone out Friday night with another friend named Misty. I haven't been able to reach Misty. It was a quiet night in Gilmer. Friday night, we just, I guess you could say, kind of wandering aimlessly. I think we did go out to some trailer house. Some guys lived out there, just, you know, see what they were doing. It didn't, we didn't stay long. I ended up having to go home close to midnight or a little before. And her and Misty ended up staying out later. And so the next morning, you know, we kind of call each other or talking and kind of, you know, recapping the night. And I'm curious to know if they ended up finding anything else to do. And, you know, she's telling me, no, not really. We, you know, we stayed out another hour or so, and then we came home. And then as we're talking, she's like, you know, I think somebody came to my window last night. Kelly's bedroom window was right next to a little side street. She's trying to sort out whether she's imagining this. She was, you know, maybe a little drunk and hearing things or dreamed it or it really happened. But as she's, you know, kind of talking out loud, she's just saying, you know, well, no, I think there was somebody there. You know, they were tapping on window saying, hey, Kelly. She, I guess, convinced herself that, yeah, maybe there was somebody actually there because she heard the dogs barking. She couldn't really say who. I mean, she didn't know. She just knew it would sound like a couple of guys. Jennifer was still talking to Kelly's mom, Kathy, when they were joined by James York Brown, the officer investigating Kelly's disappearance. The strange guys knocking on Kelly's window, that seemed like a clue Sergeant Brown might want to know about. Near the end of our visit, uh, Brown shows up 
and she introduces me to him and she says you know why don't you tell him about kelly's thinking somebody came to her window the other night and so i tell him you're thinking like the movies like well maybe they can fingerprint the window seal or you know stuff like that nothing ever came of it like you know i guess i asked her mom later did he check you know she's like well i think he looked but they didn't really investigate that lead i guess you could say and i never got another i never i was never called about it i was never asked about it and i think there's a lot of people her friend group that could say kind of like yeah there were a lot of kind of loose ends that weren't explored so there was maybe you know another side to kelly that some of us didn't know or or, or just maybe not another side, but in other things that she was involved in, perhaps. I remember going before that grand jury and they were asking me all these questions about Kelly. They were asking me questions about things I didn't know. There were some pictures of Kelly naked that had circulated around the school. They asked me if I knew if she'd ever done cocaine. I was like, no. And I mean, we partied. I don't feel like she'd keep a lot from me, but I don't know because I've since learned things, you know, firsthand things. No one I've spoken to said they ever saw Kelly using any substances harder than alcohol and pot. But I heard something else that connects back to drugs. Kelly had this step cousin from Louisiana where she'd lived before she moved to East Texas. The cousin didn't want to be recorded, but she says that Kelly confided in her during the fall semester of their senior year when they took a campus tour of Louisiana State in Baton Rouge. She told me she wanted to move back to her dad's to get away from her ex. He was harassing her, demanding back gifts he had given her, wouldn't accept that they were done. She told me they broke up because he was dealing and she was pissed because he tricked her into holding for him once when he was going to be gone for a weekend. Kelly didn't mention any names to her cousin. And I've looked at several guys Kelly dated and I haven't heard about any of them dealing drugs. People are afraid, I think, of just throwing stuff out there willy-nilly because there's a lot of decent people that were maybe mixed up in this and then maybe some shady characters too. But you don't know, you know, so you you just, you don't want to be careless. Jennifer also addresses claims made in the last episode that Kelly might have been taking money for sex. This sort of thing couldn't happen in Gilmer, right? Well, on one hand, I'm kind of like, wouldn't we know? I mean, like we were, we were partying with Kelly and we weren't like judging. I mean, we were, we were all up to no good for the most part, just having fun. But why wouldn't she tell us? But then again, if that was actually happening and we didn't know, well, then there was there was this other side of things that was going on and we didn't know about it. I don't know what other girls, though, would have been participating in that. There was this circle, you know, if, if there were two or three or four girls that were getting paid to have sex with older men, who, who else would it be? I don't know. One more rumor has floated out there for years. In episode one, Kelly's dad, Robbie, said the last time he ever talked to his daughter, Kelly said she had something to tell him. Here's Kelly's friend, Michelle. I honestly don't think that the pregnancy is the reason why she's gone. I just don't. In my heart of hearts, I don't feel like that. Michelle thinks Kelly found out something she wasn't supposed to know. As a young girl, you start questioning, you might get upset. 
get ready to turn somebody in or she witnessed she knew about who was doing drugs she probably i mean she could have made a threat or anything because she was upset about what had transpired and if the whole community gets scared that she's going to take them down they'll handle it so my fear is that it's something she got in way too deep and she got in way too deep maybe because she was pregnant and getting upset and things were starting to snowball. According to Michelle, the day before Kelly disappeared, she told a couple of her friends that she needed to tell them something. There's no way to know if this is the same something Kelly wanted to tell her dad, Robbie. And then Saturday she went to work and she told them, come by later because I have something I need to show you or tell you. I feel like she wanted them to come up there. She needed to show them something up there at the video store. I mean, keep in mind back then we did not have cell phones. You can't send pictures. If you want to talk to somebody, you're on a landline where somebody could be listening to you. So you're probably not going to have a real in-depth conversation on a landline that could be detrimental so you're going to want to have those conversations in person so she wanted them to come by and wanted to show them something and then they had volleyball tournaments and got in too late and said we'll just catch up with her later and so they never did go to me all this speculation rumor and peculiar details raise more questions than answers a week after my first call with private investigator amanda gamble She and I agreed to meet at the local library. Amanda brought along her husband, Ricky, just in case I turned out to be a weirdo. Amanda had learned some other stuff about Kelly, things that had never been shared in public. As the private investigator for Kelly's mom, Kathy, Amanda wasn't exactly on Team Robbie. There was a a point in time that he had put Kelly in a mental institution. Really? But he didn't tell you that, did he? Not at all. Mm Mm-hmm. And we are, we're, we're working on getting those records right now to see why, uh, what, what was his, his motive for that? Why did he do that? Later, I called and asked Robbie whether he'd ever had Kelly committed. He turned it back on Kathy. She would go weeks and weeks right here from her mother. And I'd come home from work and I could tell immediately that Kathy had called and talked to her, her, her entire personality and disposition would, would be different, be changed, be agitated and combative and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, long story short, when she was, when Kelly was, uh, the last time she was living with us, she went on one of these tears after uh, Kathy had agitated her and uh, she tried to run away. And so, you know, I, I put her in, in the hospital just to for no other reason to keep her from going back to her mother. and uh, But she wasn't there but a week or so, if I remember right. And I think Kathy came and got her out. She Was she diagnosed with any kind of psych? psych- I don't I don't recall that she was. Well, she might have been, but I don't know. I mean, she, was, she was just a very confused young lady that her mother just kept, like I said, just kept things stirred up. Like Kelly's friend Michelle, Amanda believes that Kelly might have been pregnant when she vanished. As I've continued to investigate and the more that I have found out, um, there were a lot of, uh, I'm just going to say it, there was a lot of sexual payments made to Kelly by judges 
lawyers, police officers. So that's where we get into the part where I told you that if we're not careful, we could have lives in danger. The FBI does investigate corruption. And it's very possible at this point that um, it's, it's all going to be linked together and it's all tied together. We are pretty confident that she was pregnant. Don't know how far along. She did like older men. We do know that. We're looking at, <clears throat> we're looking at some bad people. I mean, without a doubt. Amanda and I talked so long, the library closed for the day. Thank you for visiting the Lumberman You want to go outside? Sure. We reconvened in the parking lot. I shared a few things with Amanda that I'd heard. Things about Kathy. In the last episode, you heard Sergeant Brown allege that Kathy wanted to end the search for Kelly. But, according to Amanda, Kathy said no such thing. The only person that she really truly did not like was James Brown. And that's because she felt like that he was covering things up and hiding things. What she told him was, you're going to bring somebody else in here to help investigate this. I want my daughter found. She said, I remember saying something about that. She said, but I don't, she said, it's like half of, half of things are a daze for me. It's all, and I said, like you were on autopilot. She said, yes. And she said, but I don't, I never went in there and told him he's going to close this case. Why would I tell him to close the case on my daughter? Then they started, you know, pointing the finger at Kathy and they went their separate ways because Kathy said, I'm not, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to deal with this. I'm looking for my daughter. You're not going to sit here and tell me that I killed my daughter. Through Amanda, Kathy also rejected the claim that she was already talking about funeral arrangements the day after Kelly turned up missing. Okay, squash funeral arrangement talk. I'm going to squash that. And it was not that day that they got there. She said, at one point, we did talk about a funeral. Um, she said, and it's because we had not had, where is she? We still don't know where she is. Months into this. Amanda had her own theory about what happened to Kelly. So basically what I'm gathering is the abduction took place. Several men, up to four or five, were out on this piece of land. They sexually assaulted her and killed her and buried her. So um, that's what I have to prove. We have an opportunity a true, true opportunity to solve. God is working. God is working. And all of us are coming together in the right time. Right. And I believe that. That I am a very spiritual person. And I believe that. If we play our cards right and we do it the correct way and we follow this path, we're going to find the answers. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Wes Ferguson. This is Devil Town. This is Chapter 9, Secrets. 
You know who probably has more information than anyone about the disappearance of Kelly Wilson? The cops. In theory, at least. When I started reporting on Kelly's story back in the spring, the Gilmer Police Department was among the first places I called. Then I emailed. Dropped by. Phoned and emailed a few more times. I visited the station in person on two other occasions. The police chief was never around. No one ever responded to any of my interview requests. The Gilmer police froze me out. If they wouldn't comment, maybe I could look at their old reports. See what they missed. I filed a request for public information relating to the case. The city of Gilmer fought my request. We feel this is the largest and most important unsolved case in the city, county, and possibly the state of Texas. That's from a letter the city of Gilmer wrote to the Texas Attorney General's office asking to keep their records hidden. Their argument? To this day, police are still receiving and looking into leads about Kelly. It is the opinion of the department that any non-law enforcement investigation may disrupt the ongoing investigation into the case. The attorney general sided with the Gilmer police. They were allowed to withhold the information from me. I had also asked for police files that related to the case on Joe Henry, the former video store manager. I got back one page of information with basically nothing useful on it. On one hand, I get it. You're in law enforcement, you're busy, you don't want to deal with some out-of-town journalist poking around. But come on, they've had 30 years to work the case. I tried a few retired cops. Most didn't respond or flat-out declined to comment. There was an important exception. My name is Richard Sproul, and I worked, uh, I was a volunteer chaplain here, and then I was a full-time uh, police officer here. Richard Sproul still lives in Gilmer. Way back when I was a newspaper crime reporter, I interviewed him several times about a bunch of unrelated cases. That's why Richard's name jumped out to me when I was reading old news stories about Kelly Wilson and Sergeant James York Brown, the Gilmer cop falsely accused of killing her. It turns out Richard and James Brown were tight. We were pretty close. We were pretty good friends. Uh, he was he was a, a very good police officer. He uh, he watched out for a lot for around, around town. Richard says he never doubted for a second that James Brown was innocent in Kelly's disappearance. There was no question in my mind. Some of the times that they were making accusations against him, I was actually with him during those times. So I knew that there was no truth to some of that. Uh, and so because there was some no truth to some of it, then I just assumed there's probably very little truth to any of it. When, uh, when the indictments came down, I was on the city council and we had a, uh, they called a special meeting, uh, executive session. Uh, so I can't tell you everything that was said in there, but it was basically, we need to fire him. We don't need this, um, uh, we don't need this kind of stuff on the city. Uh, it, it, I think it was decided that we would uh, suspend him with pay uh, until further investigation. Richard thought the decision to suspend James Brown was such a huge mistake, he resigned his city council seat in protest. Richard went on to tell me a story about a member of the grand jury, this guy who later regretted indicting James Brown, uh, when and he said, suddenly there was said, all this commotion. We've done these people wrong. A scrawny guy in his mid-thirties came in. He had a big puppy with him. The friendly dog scrambled over to the couch where I was sitting so I could pet him. He said, and then they gave us a list of names and said, these are the people that did it. And his his statement was... It got a little loud for a second. Would you mind repeating? He said they presented all the information about a black mask, about a sacrifice, 
and that wow. we were so uh, amazed and disgusted by all of this that if he had told us Santa Claus had done it, we would have indicted Santa Claus. And, and the worst part about this, it could have been stopped at any time, and nobody was willing to stand up and say stop. Do you think anybody could have done that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, the county commissioners had appointed uh, the special prosecutor and the special investigators. They could have said something. The district judge could have said something. There were several places. You know, the grand jury, uh, if they had been uh, instructed on how a grand jury is supposed to operate and what they're looking for, they could have said something, uh, but they weren't. So uh, that, that's what led to this big miscarriage of justice. Richard was so outraged by the false charges against Sergeant Brown, he actually joined the police department full-time to do more, see if he could make a difference. That was one of the reasons uh, that I decided to go full-time into law enforcement, that there was no reason that thing should, that, 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 that type of a miscarriage of justice should ever happen with people watching it happen. Do you remember, what were the... What was the most promising lead of what actually happened to Kelly? There were, there were two or three rumors that were going around. Sergeant Brown had investigated these as leads. He, he could never get anything definitive, uh, could never get probable cause on either one. One of them was that she had attended a, uh, uh, a rave, basically, had ended up because of overdose or whatever uh, that she died and the kids there panicked uh, and, and went and hid her body. Uh, and that was, that was one of them uh, that, was, that he was really strongly supporting. The other one, well, I don't know if I want to get into that part or not because it involves a whole lot of other people that really had nothing to do with it. Uh, uh, the Kurs? No, not, not so much the Kurs as it was Kelly's uh, boyfriend right. at the time. So, Who has since passed away. Well. That's again part of it. She actually had a boyfriend that was in West Point. And while he was away in West Point, uh, then she was dating this guy that has since passed away. Uh, here, the, the allegation was that when the gentleman from West Point was coming back for Christmas, that the guy she was dating here, she told him, uh, you need to stay away and don't come around while he's here because I have a lot better future with him than I have with you. So I'm gonna be with him while he's home on leave during the Christmas vacation. Uh, and we'll see what happens uh, afterwards. Uh, and so when he went back, her disappearance, I wanna say he went back on the, the, the 2nd of January and her disappearance was just a couple of days after that. Uh, and the, the idea was that the, the guy who has since passed away got mad uh, and whether intentionally or accidentally, uh, caused her death in some way. I was able to track down the boyfriend who went to West Point. His name is Josh. He declined a phone interview, but responded to questions via email. Josh says he dated Kelly through most of her junior year, when Josh was a senior. After he moved to New York to attend the military academy, they stayed in touch, even though Kelly was dating other guys. Back home for Christmas break, Josh says he met up with Kelly just once, you might remember in episode one, Kelly's friend Michelle brought up the same meeting. It was the last time she or Josh ever saw Kelly. During their last hangout, Josh says he and Kelly agreed to stay in touch and remain friendly, whether they remained a couple or not. 
Josh was already back at West Point when he learned the news of Kelly's disappearance. He says he has fond memories of her and thinks about her often. The other so-called boyfriend was Chris Denton. We mentioned him earlier in the series. Chris Denton died with cancer in his 30s. He was once named publicly as the chief suspect, but they never could apparently get the goods of him. He was never charged. Police say Chris had a violent history. There was a guy walking down the street, and Chris stabbed him in the back as they drove by. But people who were friends with Chris and Kelly pretty much all insist that they weren't a serious couple, and Chris had nothing to do with Kelly's disappearance. That's your first easy target. I've had a lot of long conversations with Chris, and there, in my mind, there's absolutely no way he could have had anything to do with it. I, then I talked to Chris on the phone that night, and I never understood why the police weren't interested in that. I went to the police station and told them, I know y'all are looking into Chris, but I was on the phone with him, and not a one person ever talked to me about it. If it wasn't Chris Denton, the ex-boyfriend, then there's somebody out there who abducted and murdered Kelly Wilson, who's, you know, potentially after that free to go out and do it again. All right, back to my interview with Richard. There was something else I'd been wondering, something weird involving the Gilmer cops. What about the, uh, the theft at the police department of the files? I, I wasn't here when that happened, so I don't know that much about that. On Halloween night in 1994, someone broke into the Gilmer Police Department and stole a bunch of the case files about Kelly Wilson. This was several months after all the charges were dropped in the case against the group of suspects that included the Kerr family and James Brown. The break-in went down between 6.15 and 8.50 p.m. The burglars came in through the Sallyport door in the back of the station. They raided the patrol room and even the police chief's office making off with a total of five boxes, including personnel records and old patrol logs. Remember Melvin Dodd, the charter member of the Justice for Kelly Wilson Committee? By random coincidence, Melvin took his 13 kids trick-or-treating across the street from the police station around the same time police say the burglary occurred. Melvin's skeptical. He says there were a jillion trick-or-treaters around. Someone would have noticed. It certainly didn't take place while trick-or-treating was going on. Right. It would have been impossible for it to have without being detected. It was an inside job. There was too much information in there. So all kinds of records just disappeared from the face of the earth. The police wouldn't say how many documents were stolen, but they did say that none of the files were original records. They were supposedly just copies of documents provided to Special Prosecutor Scott Lyford during his investigation, which had ended nearly a year earlier. Okay, I know what you're talking about now. I don't, uh, that was kind of, you know, kept between the chief and, and Sergeant Brown as to what actually uh, they were investigating on that part of it. Who would have been able to do that? <laughs> Who would have wanted to? That You know, why would you want to do that? Uh, the only thing that I could think of was that, that uh, they felt that the case was leading in a particular direction toward a particular person, uh, and they wanted to protect that person, whoever took the case file. Why else would you want it? I really don't know. A news story in the Gilmer Mirror from 1994 states that police collected 13 fingerprints from the break-in, 
but I've never heard of anyone being arrested for it. And none of the news articles clarify whether the back door had been left unlocked, or if someone had a key, or if the door had been smashed in. You can speculate all day about this one. Who knew enough about the police department to quickly find Kelly Wilson's files when no one was around? But someone who maybe didn't realize the files were just copies. It's yet another weird little wrinkle in the Kelly Wilson saga. I thanked Richard Sproul for his time. Take care. Mm-hmm. You actually picked a real good time to come because that was my son's dog. Our, our two dogs would have been all over you. They just love people. So, <laughs> Well, I love dogs, so it would have been okay. Okay. <laughs> After leaving Richard's house, I drove out of town into the country on the Cherokee Trace. Remember, the Trace is the old winding road where the Kerr family lived when they were wrongly accused of killing Kelly Wilson. Although many of the Kerrs are dead now, a few of the family members still claim to live in a little house out there, according to the state sex offender registry. I pulled into the unpaved driveway. I'm outside the Kerrs. Um, there's a bunch of no trespassing signs, so hope this goes okay. No one came to the door. I drove back into town. Except for my interview with Richard, my reporting trip felt like a bust. I pulled over beside the railroad tracks and opened my laptop. I was sitting in the driver's seat, scrolling through my spreadsheet of people I still wanted to talk to, wondering what I should do next. Then, out of the corner of my eye, a man walked up from behind my car. It was the same guy with the dog from Richard Sproul's house. He waved, so I rolled my window down. This is what he said. I know what happened to Kelly Wilson. So I'm parked by the tracks in Gilmer when this guy walks up to my window and he drops this bombshell about Kelly Wilson. I'm trying to think fast. I ask if he wants to get in my car. He comes around to the passenger side. Now what? I hired three black men whom he had arrested for drug possession and they got off on their charges if they killed her because she was pregnant with his baby. And all three of them raped her, beat her, killed her, and fed her to the hogs. I know for a fact I've heard from all three of the guys. You're fucking kidding me. No. Swear to God. Okay. So she was pregnant with the baby and it would have ruined his marriage. He named a well-known person in Gilmer. Are these guys still around? Uh, two of them are in prison now for other charges. One of them is still around. One of them still sells dope here in town. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think would happen if I tried to talk to them? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Their great uncle is a very good friend of mine. Yeah. And he's the one who told me what happened and told me how they did it, where they did it, why they did it. You know, all three of the guys at one point or another were at a barbecue at his house and were like, yeah, yeah, that was us. I was like, no fucking way. I was like, why don't y'all say something about it to somebody, you know, just that y'all know what happened to her. Yeah. And they're like, oh, no, we're not getting in trouble for it. <laughs> Ain't no way now. Mm -hmm. Do you mind telling me their names? I can't do that. Really? No. No, I can't. Who uh, Who else should I talk to that might, might know more? <sighs> if you go into... The park, Vinegar Hill, 
Do you know where that is? Okay. It's out over here. Um, there were people around. Just start asking if they've heard anything. Um, it's kind of where the dope houses are and everything. And she was on heroin real bad. Um, they all sold heroin. She was also tricking for money. She was tricking with when she got pregnant. Would you mind showing me where Vinegar Hill is? Yeah, that's fine. It turns out this guy's name is Jared. He's Richard's son. Following Jared's directions, we drive through downtown, cross a highway, and come to a more rundown neighborhood on the edge of Gilmer. There's overgrown brush everywhere. The streets narrow to a single lane, like tunnels through a leafy forest. Turn to the right. This park on the left is Vinegar Hill. Down to the park starts here. Mm -hmm. Everything around this is called Vinegar Hill. Okay. And do you think, like, later in the day, there'll be people just kind of hanging yeah, out? Yeah, they will be hanging out all around there about 3 o'clock. Uh-huh. Okay. Let me just make a... I'll save it on my map. Jared would have only been, like, seven years old when Kelly disappeared. The rumor he'd always heard was that someone he knew sold drugs to Kelly, and she overdosed. Now, the rumor that I heard for years was that she OD'd dope and that she was buried underneath the floor of the church but I was told by my the friend that's my that's their that's black guy's great uncle anyway that that's not what happened can we go see the uncle he just left he was at the house when you were there really but no I mean he's not gonna talk about it no I guarantee you as he talked Jared started kind of nervously squeezing this disposable water bottle in his hands that's the crinkling noise you hear the three guys and the great uncle are the only ones that have ever said anything to me, and they're the ones who did it. So I don't know of anyone else who could really say anything like that. I had never even heard anything, any rumors or anything about that until he told me that day. And then about three months after that, there was a barbecue, and I met the first one. And he was, you know, just kind of nonchalant. Yeah, that's what happened, but didn't go into detail. I have to say, from the moment Jared sat down and started talking, I was skeptical. Some of his details were off. Plus, here in the American South, blaming random black guys for violence against a white woman is a little on the nose. But Jared knew a lot about the case, and even Kelly's friends think she might have been pregnant. According to Jared, the slashed tire was part of the murder plot. Slashed her tire so that she didn't have any choice but to go out with someone else. That were like female present, and supposedly. She came to them a couple of years ago and said that she couldn't hold it in anymore. And they said if she said something, they would kill her. Hmm. And that was the last I heard about that, but I don't know who she was. Oh, you don't know her name or how to find out who she was? No, but I know that she's the one who got Kelly to come out with him that night. Oh, my God. And she's had to live with that ever since. Yeah, but she knew what they were going to do to her. She knew they were hired for it, everything like that. And she did it for the dope. They gave her some dope for getting Kelly out of the house and get him to come with her. Mm -hmm. So, just to be clear, you're 100% certain. Oh yeah, that's what happened to her. This person would not have said anything unless that's what happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about a 70 year old man. Hmm. He's not just gonna be talking rumors and gossip. And it was a straightforward, this is what happened. Don't even talk about the rumors that you heard because they're not true. Hmm. I was like, oh, okay. Can you think of anybody else who might be able to add something? Like I said, go to Vinegar Hill. Anyway, all right, man, it was nice to meet you. Yeah, Jared, nice to meet you. I really appreciate you. Uh-huh. Take care.
Well, shit. I waited till 3 p.m., then drove back to the park. It was deserted. I went back again and again every time I was in Gilmer last summer. I never saw any grown men hanging out, just some kids playing basketball once. Jared had actually given me the guy's name. I found a nearby address for him, but it was an abandoned shack. I also called another guy, the one who was accused by Jared of dealing drugs to Kelly shortly before she vanished. He told me, I mean, and he told me some stuff that was just pretty wild. You had sold drugs to Kelly on the day that she died? Does that ring a bell? This individual insisted he never sold drugs, and beyond that, was off to college the year Kelly disappeared. Yeah, so he's just like completely off base. So you you have no no knowledge of, of what happened um, to Kelly at all? His answer? Not at all. So, I don't know. When Jared told me what he'd heard about Kelly, he didn't seem like he was high or hallucinating at the time, but I have to say, he didn't really strike me as the most credible person either. I reached out to Jared again the other day. It had been several months since he knocked on my car window and we drove around Vinegar Hill. I wanted to see if he stood by his story. Hey Jared, thanks for calling me back. How you been? I'm okay, man. How are you? Oh, I'm good. And I just wanted to just double check that, um, you know, you had said that, you know, your older friend had told you that it was those three guys. Yeah. Um, I was not able to get in touch with, with any of those people. I went by that park several times. I'm not giving names. I've told you that before. And your older friend, you don't want to give me his name either? No. No, just because I, he would be very mad that I even said anything. Mm -hmm. It was said to me in the confidence of... Anyway. 30 minutes after my conversation with Jared, he called me back. This time, he had a proposal. If I would give him 150 bucks to pay off a ticket, he'd tell me all the names and share their phone numbers. I won't lie. Part of me was kind of tempted. You know, I'm not sure about the, the ethics of that as a journalist. I'm... Well, that's fine. That's just the only way I can do it. I'm, I'm sad, but I'm going to have to decline that. Um, that's fine. I know what it's like to be in a jam, though, so I feel you. You're cool. I was just going to let you know. So, yeah, I don't know about Jared. After this, we're down to the last episode of Devil Town. I want to take a closer look at Chris Denton and also check in with Amanda, the private eye. There's been a shocking development in Kelly's case, one I haven't even had time to mention yet. We're going to take a two-week break to give me time to get out there and do some more important reporting, and hopefully we'll have more answers by the time we're back. Devil Town is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and created by me, Wes Ferguson. Executive producer is Jason Hoke. Audio engineering and editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. Original score is by Robert Ellis. Recording by Austin Sisler at Eastside Studios. If you like the show, leave a review and don't forget to tell your friends. Thanks for listening.